we're a sport that generates one more than 1 billion people watching. And I think more than only 500 people should be able to make a living of their sports when you have more than 1 billion fan base. And welcome to a brand new edition of Match Points here on TennisMajors.com, where we gather together to debate and discuss the biggest topics in tennis. This is the post-slam uh, edition, if you will, Indian Wells, and of course, Miami Open, so we're in that good time of the year. The weather's getting better. Tennis is getting interesting. Say hello to our panel as always. There he is, the journalist and, of course, writer and author Ben Rothenberg. Also journalist, writer, and one of those guys in tennis, stay on his good side, Simon Cambers. And last but not least, tennis journalist and, of course, player and Wimbledon champion 2013, Marian Bartoli. All right, gang, let's get right at it. Between Carlos Alcaraz, winner at Indian Wells and semifinalist in Miami, and then Novak Djokovic, absent from the Sunshine Double, who do you believe, in your opinion, is the true world number one? Let us begin with Marian Bartoli. Well, it's very simple. It's Novak Djokovic, just simply because he won again at the Australian Open and he just couldn't participate in the Sunshine um, we just couldn't play in Indian Wells, Miami, and we all know the reasons why. So I'm not saying that Carlos Alcaraz didn't deserve to do all the results he has done. He obviously played tremendous tennis, and especially that match against Sinner, even though he lost it at the end. I think for me, that first set was one of the best tennis sets I've ever seen. The level was just absolutely insane. And and it's great to see that those kids are taking over and um, and making sure that the ATP has a really bright for sure ahead, even though when Rafa and Novak are going to retire, they will be the next superstars. But for now, you have one guy that has 22 Grand Slam, another one that has one Grand Slam. So it's very easy to say who is number one. Um, but I'm really looking forward to the clay and, of course, Wimbledon ahead as well to, to see when both of them will be able to play those events. If they go toe-to-toe, who will be the best? All right, Ben Rothenberg, same question. Who is your true world number one? I think it, I would pick Djokovic also. I mean, he is the actual number one right now in the rankings. He got it back. And I think it's closer than Mary made it sound, though, just because, I mean, Alcaraz didn't play Australia. So they really have been ships passing in the night completely. And it's been very strange to have them trading back this number one ranking without playing each other or even being at the same tournament or on the same continent for this long. And I just saw Alcaraz is out of uh, Monte Carlo now. So it's going to be even longer that we're waiting for these two to meet each other, which is very frustrating on a fan level to have this sort of duel for number one, but not actually have them playing each other. It's very rare for ATP. I feel like that happens sometimes on WTA, uh, where like Osaka and Barty, for example, would, would be trading back number one, but not playing each other very much. Uh, this is kind of the same thing happening to the men now for all these circumstances of, of Alcaraz's uh, injuries and Djokovic's continuing not being vaccinated and having the travel problems he's having. So... We'll see. I mean, I do think Djokovic, if, if they were to play each other on a clay court, you know, in Madrid, let's say, I think I would pick Djokovic, although uh, Alcaraz did beat him there last year. I think it's going to be very close. I just hope mo- more than anything that they play each other more and more. I hope that they get a chance to build up a bit of a rivalry because this is a real torch-passing generational moment uh, that could be really good for the continuity of the sport to have Alcaraz, if he does become the next number one, earn it with a few victories head-to-head in the biggest tournaments over Djokovic. Fair enough. Simon, who do you have as your true, if you will, world number one? Well, Novak's world number one because he is number one. There's no getting around that. He won Wimbledon. He won the Australian Open. As Ben said, I mean, you know, they haven't played each other. So if you're asking who's the better player, that's a different question. You know, who's the better player right now and who you'd pick if they were to play each other on any given surface is really up in the air. I think Alcaraz is taking the game to a new level. 
dragging a few other people along with him. Um, but who's to say that Novak won't be able to take care of him when they play each other? I'm looking forward to the clay. It's a shame Alcaraz can't play Monte Carlo, but you know, come Roland Garros, if if he's fully fit, if Novak's fully fit, if Rafa's fully fit, then it could be something really special. But right now, Novak's number one. The way the ranking system is, it's skewed towards the slams. Uh, he's won two of them. Alcaraz has won one, so it's no surprise really that. Novak should be uh, at number one. Well, I just want to add that Djokovic doesn't have any points for Wimbledon, too, in all this equation. So he'd be way ahead for number one if he had points for his Wimbledon title. All right, gentlemen and lady, we'll move along. Rafa Nadal has won only one match in 2023 and has not played since the Australian Open. He's out, as we said, for Monte Carlo for the second year in a row. Are you worried about Rafa for the French Open and also for the remainder of of his career are you concerned and if so how much ben you're nodding already yeah I, I, certainly i mean he's getting older at some point it has to stop and i think rafa made us all look kind of silly when last year he he lost in rome uh to shapovalov i think in the second or third round of, of rome and it was just and he was having trouble walking and it's like oh i'm in really bad shape i can't win and it was finally okay you know finally it's over for rafa the end is near and then he wins the french open with no problem at all and crushes rude in the final and beats Djokovic on the way and stuff so it's never going to confidently bet out at all, but eventually, eventually time is undefeated and eventually there will come an end for Rafa. And his last results since that French Open title, or since Wimbledon withdrawal, really, when he withdrew from the semifinal, his results have been really bad. I mean, he's just not winning very many matches. He's losing a lot. He's lost a lot to Americans, which he never used to do, which has been very strange for this country, beating Nadal constantly all of a sudden. Um, so yeah, I, I think that, uh, I think I, I'm concerned. I do think the end is possibly near and we'll get signs probably early well maybe not early because it's always his best at the french i don't think you can rule him out until he's actually lost the best of five match at the french i think he always has that possibility uh to win that tournament uh just based on his history there and the magic he can produce there but i think it's less likely than ever i'll say that at this point that he's going to win another french open simon how concerned are you yeah, a little concerned. I mean, you know, when you saw the injury that he got at the Australian Open, it was his uh, hip flexor almost. He, I mean, he couldn't hit a backhand after that. And I think, you know, the the shots we've seen of him practicing, I haven't seen a single backhand. It's mostly just, it's almost all forehands. So he's clearly not ready yet. But then again, he did say, even in Australia, that Monte Carlo was a push. It might be Barcelona, it might be Madrid. If you look at the last few years of what Nadal's done on clay, in the build-up to Roland Garros, he's not been brilliant in those tournaments. He's not been at his best physically or sometimes mentally. So I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be gravely concerned. But I am concerned because, you know, as Ben said, it's you know he's thirty-six, coming on thirty-seven. His body's been through the ringer time and time and time again. Somewhere along the line, it will catch up with him, and he won't be able to do what he's done for fourteen times at Roland Garros. But I still wouldn't put it past it because if he if he does come back in Madrid or Rome or Barcelona even, then he's still got time to to get there. And beating him over five sets at Roland Garros is something that so few people have been able to do um, over the years. That you know he, he's still well capable of doing it. It's just that we don't know what kind of shape he's in and what how deep that injury is, how bad it's been. What, when he's going to come back. And yeah, of course, there's going to be concern. It's, it's just a shame not to see him in Monte Carlo. I said earlier today, it just feels a bit wrong. You know, he's won that tournament so many times. It's part of the fabric. Um, not being there is a shame. But, you know, you just wish him to get back and give it a chance to be 100% at Roland Garros. 
Marion, same question. How concerned are you for Rafa with this upcoming French Open and for the remainder of what does remain of this legendary career? I'm on the exact same page as Simon. The only thing I will add, because everything has been said, is last year I've been very lucky to be a lot of his match courtside. So when really you buy the flowers on Philippe Chatrier and you can sense everything, the intensity, um, the fatigue, the pain, um, and also how much he can raise his game. And I will always remember I was sitting there for the match against Sasha Zverev and the match against Novak Djokovic. And I was just keeping on saying to myself, you just can't hit through Rafa on that court. It's just almost impossible. He was just defending, almost hitting with his rackets, the lunge just behind him. And he makes the court so small for the opponents. And you obviously, all of you guys remember the match against Zverev when Zverev was playing incredible tennis. That match was said to go for like six hours marathon. And obviously that the twist of the ankle happened to Sasha. But the intensity that he's capable of putting on that court. It's something I never saw him doing elsewhere. I think there is something special about this court, Philippe Chatrier. I think it's it's all about the history, how much he has won, how much confidence that court is giving him, that I don't think we, we can rate him off yet. Um, and as long as he is in the draw to play in Roland Garros, I think he goes there as a favorite. Um, and I think Novak and everyone would agree to that. Now, it's obviously about how much match you have in your legs because even if you're Rafael Nadal, you need some sort of stamina. You need to be able to have, you know, few matches you can look at and say, okay, I've been able to sustain three sets or I'll be able to sustain three hours. Because otherwise, if you go in a Grand Slam, knowing that those kids like Alcara, Senior, not even talking about Novak Djokovic, but they're going to go out at him full out. And he will need to be able to sustain that pace for a long period of time. And obviously, we saw that the Australian Open, just the body can't cope cope with that anymore. So my question is there, you know, does he have enough in terms of build-up to be able to sustain the pace that is just harder and harder those days? Well, I just want to add something more positive. I mean, he just ended recent, very recently his streak of being in the top 10 for almost 18 years consecutively, never leaving the top 10, which, I mean, I was in high school the last time Rafael Nadal was not in the top 10. Um, so it's a real, it's really, a, it's an incredible whole, like whole generation lifetime away that he's been there as a fixture, despite all of the injury breaks he's had, he's always kept a foot there. Um, so he's almost certainly not going to be in the top 10 when the French Open comes around this time, unless he, you know, wins Monte Carlo and Ro- and uh, Madrid or something. Uh, so that also will change his seating. He could play someone like Djokovic, you know, in the fourth round, uh, potentially if he's one of those 13 through 16 seeds, which seems very possible. Uh, so that's going to be different or, or Alcaraz in the, in the, in the fourth round or Medvedev even, or whoever else is in the top, uh, top four seeds. It's going to be a different road than usual for, for Nadal, uh, at that tournament. Yeah. When we talk about records in sports, that, that consecutive top 10 streak feels almost untouchable in a day and age in which I don't know if anyone can emulate that. Let's flip quickly over to the women's side, shall we? Um, the question here being asked of us by our producers is, can Svantec, Sabalenka, and Rabakina, can they become the big three of women's tennis? And if not, tell me which of those three you believe does not belong. Eventually, will prove to not belong. And Marian, we'll come to you first. Oh my God, women's tennis, how to predict something nowadays. I mean, this is almost <laughs> unpredictable. But I would think, based off what Rebakina and Zambadeka has been able to, to show us since the beginning of the year on hard court, um, and obviously Rebakina last year at Wimbledon, I think on the fast surface, definitely they're part of the conversation. And Iga is just very consistent. 
Um, obviously, she didn't win a slam. She didn't win the Australian Open. She didn't win anything in the sunshine, even though she has to pull out of Miami. But she's there in the conversation every time. She gets really consistent results. Now, on clay, you have to put Iga as first, absolutely. And then that's where I'm doubting slightly more the results of Zabalenka and Rybakina on clay, based on the surface and then game style. And I think some other girls can be part of the mix. I'm thinking about Kreshikova. Obviously, she has won Roland Garros in the past. I'm thinking about Paula Badosa. If she's able to get some form and some sort of confidence back into her game, she can be a really good clay quarter. Maria Sakkari. I think on the clay specifically, there's just more girls into the conversation. I think on the hard and grass and general fast surfers, these top three look to me as the most consistent and, and overall the girls that you will find, you know, consistently on the semifinal and onwards. Simon, can they become the big three of women's tennis? And if not, who do you have as the odd woman out? They could, they could be, um, but it's way too early to say. I mean, they they need to show it for a year or two. I mean, okay, Shiontek is doing it. It's a year today, I think, as we record, that uh, she's been number one in the world, which is a, a great achievement. Um, Sabalenka sourced out her serve very well to get uh, that Australian Open title. Rebecca looks very at home on fast surfaces. I would worry about her on clay a little because... Her forehand is still a bit funky. And, you know, if she has to create pace, that's when she struggles. Um, backhand is excellent. And serve, obviously, massive weapon. Um, Krachikova, a big threat on clay. I would put Coco Goff in there. Um, you know, finalist in Paris last year. Clay sort of suits her, strangely, because you, you would have thought hard courts and does, but she's she's at home on the clay court. Um, and there are others, you know, Jesse Pagula is very consistent. So I think there'll be chops and changes over the time. I don't think, I think it's too early to say that they could be the, the, the big three in the sign, in the same kind of way as obviously we had with Federer, Nadal and Djokovic. Okay. So Ben, if you had to predict a big three, the future of women's tennis, who are you putting in that? Well, I just want to sort of follow what Simon was saying on the defining what big three means. I mean, a big three in men's tennis was three guys who all won at least 20 grand slams. So I think we're setting the bar much lower for what the current WTA is going to have, uh, just because obviously 20 for anybody is a ridiculous expectation, much less the three people are going to do it the same way. Um, but yes, they could be, it would be great to have these three competing for the titles and they have won all the recent Grand Slams between them. And it's interesting and it's been great. You know, we talked about how Alcaraz and Djokovic have not been playing each other this year. We've had multiple matches in big finals between Sabalenka and uh, Rabakina this year in Australian Open in Indian Wells, which has been great to have those sort of rivalries developing. And that's what you need. And that's what women's tennis has been missing is having the same players play each other over and over in a short period of time to build up those rivalries. And so that's been really great to see. And yeah, so those two have been the best two of, of this year so far. And then certainly uh, Shviantek is still the number one and was so, so good last year that she's in the conversation as well. I think she's had the, the worst 2023 so far of the three of them, actually, Shviantek. But we assume that the injury will get better. We assume that Clay will bring out everything for her. But it's going to be different, you know? It's different defending all these points. She's going to be defending uh, being champion in Rome, French Open, uh, U.S. Open. It's going to be a different sort of pressure for her, especially maybe if Sabalenka wins a title or two more and is closing in on the actual number one ranking. Uh, we'll see how Shiontek responds to that. But I think, yeah, I feel pretty good about this as a sort of clear top three. I think there's a, I think there's a big gap between these three and the rest of the field. And Krejcikova, I think, is the number four right now, sort of in the power rankings that would have. All right, moving on now. In Forbes magazine, Francis Tiafo said that to bring new fans to the game of tennis, the public should be allowed to move around and talk in the stands during matches, much like they do in basketball. Jessica Bagula agreed with this idea. Coco Goff said she was not one to complain about noise. The question is, do you support this idea 
of allowing fans to come and go and that type of noise in the stands during tennis matches. Marian Bartoli, you played the game. You tell us. Good idea for 2023 and forward, yes or no? I have a tough time with that. Basketball is completely different. You keep on going in and out as a player. It's a team sport. It's not the same at all as being individually on the court, having to focus, point in and point out for five sets if you're a guy, three sets if you're a girl in a Grand Slam. I just think, you know, already, especially before the point, I think before the point is acceptable to have someone moving. After the point, it's just, I mean, when the point started, it just gets really difficult because you have to stay focused on the board and obviously everything coming into your vision is a distraction. So that will become a lot more difficult um, to accept. So I, I have the feeling if, if obviously it's an exhibition, uh, if it's a match that doesn't come down to a Grand Slam level or anything like this, of course, to get the fan, to get some music, to get some sort of interaction. But if you're, to, for me, in my opinion, in a match that is an official match, I just don't see it at all. I mean, the dynamic in a basketball match is completely different to a tennis matches. I think it would be way too many distractions. And where do you stop and where do you put the limit from everyone then talking? And then you have 15,000 people talking at the same time during a tennis match. It's just not possible. So I, I just, I mean, I understand the sort of idea, um, but I think as a reality, it just doesn't fit. Simon Camber, same question. Uh, allowing people to come and go, allowing talking in the stands. Is this good for tennis? Would this allow for new fans? Or as Marion said, just won't work. I mean, maybe I'm just getting old, but I just think it's a load of rubbish, really. I mean, what, what's the point? What, what actually are you trying to add to the game by letting people courtside, being able to mill around and talk and do whatever they like? People talk anyway. It's a, you know, there's a bit of noise going around. Players can handle that. But if, if people are actually moving around and, and shouting at each other and whatever, it's just going to interrupt the game and reduce the quality. And nobody wants that. I, I would say that when you're, you know, some of the stadiums around the world, I think, have it right. You know, with the the sort of middle layer upwards, people can walk around. You you can you can you can like Ash Stadium, like um, like what are the is it Margaret Court now in Australia? I think it's, it's those courts where you can view from halfway up and move around, and the noise that you make there doesn't matter because you're not in the eye line. You're not a distraction. You are adding to it. It is a good atmosphere. So if I was designing stadiums now, uh, if you know, in terms of future stadiums, I would look for something like that. I don't think there's any need to shake it up so close to the court because, as Marion said, you know, on a basketball court, the players can't really see the crowd anyway because they're, they're, their own teams and squads are sat courtside almost standing up half the time right there anyway. So it's not like their vision is an issue. It's, you know, in tennis, it's such a u- unique sport in the in the way you have to really, really focus on. And if someone's moving in your eye line when you're about to hit a volley or whatever and you're on the move, it, it really would distract, I think, from the product. So that's the way I'd go. I would first change a lot of things to make it so you can move around more. Uh, for example, I think it's terrible when stadiums don't let fans in uh, after... Women can wait three games after a set, basically. So if you're if you're a second kind late coming back from the bathroom between sets or something, you can have to wait sometimes regularly 20 or more minutes for three games to complete before you get to your seat. That's robbing ticket buying fans of a lot of tennis and sometimes a whole half a set. It's a whole, it's a very long time to wait. So I would let fans enter and refine their seats after every game, at least, which would be not just the changeovers, but give them 30 seconds to go get to their seats every time. And these are people who paid to watch the matches and to keep them waiting in the wings for so long. It, I don't think it's right. And if the players need to stand around for 10 more seconds between games to let people sit down, so be it. Uh, it doesn't bother me. I think that's the number one thing I would change in terms of fan uh, regulation and restriction. Um, and then, yeah, I think, I think 
most of the sort of visual parts, and Marion, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's fairly specific parts of a stadium that really will bother the player when they're there. So you can make it clear that the sort of a lot of the stadium is going to be okay to move around to get your seat to go to go to the bathroom to stand and stretch whatever you want to do between points, but have ushers in fairly specific zones like splash zones at SeaWorld, certain areas of the of the stadium where movement is more strictly enforced. I think that would be the way to do it. But definitely 100% let the fans come in between every game because keeping these long lines of people waiting uh, for three games, especially at the beginning of the set, and then even sometimes two games later on in the set can be very long, can be over 10 minutes often. So let those people in more often uh, is my main fix. All right, so let's shift from the Forbes magazine story to an article from the Players' Tribune. Uh, Just before International Women's Day, Denis Shapovalov calling for equal pay between professional tennis, men's, and women's sides. Do you believe this could be accomplished? And if so, how do you accomplish this? Let's begin, Simon Cambers. Yeah, there you go. That's it. The tours, the tours just need to uh, sort it out. You know, it's it's the problem, the age old problem in tennis of having seven governing bodies uh, that need to talk to each other to to sort this out. Um, yeah, there is absolutely no reason now why men and women should not be played paid the same if they're playing the same tournament. And if you know, if you're, you know, if you're, if it's a Cincinnati and you're the men and women are there, pay them the same. Absolutely, I, I don't, I don't even see it as a talking point. To be honest, it just should be done. Is it, what is inter- what, what is interesting, just sorry, what was interesting and sort of quite telling and not that surprising is that Denis Shapovalov, who I really like, only really realised the, the, what's happened in tennis after his girlfriend told him, you know, whereas it's not, it's not, it's not difficult to see, but it's nice that he, he learned it after she told him. Amorian, anything to add to this conversation? No, I mean, I'm a true advocate of that for... More than 20 years, uh, when you meet Billie Jean King, she will just open your eyes. I mean, and it's just from women like that who paved the way from all of us to start to have more than what we used to have at the beginning. And even my era, if you take the same result and you put it this year, you will earn so much more than what we were earning. I played roughly from 2000 to 2013, that decade we didn't earn the same money as the girls are earning now and and good for them. I mean, this is what we're looking for is just to get more and more to the players. And, and I think I would add to the conversation a point that Novak Djokovic made, which I think it's very true. It's only 400, 500 people can leave out from tennis. You can put 250 on the woman's side, 250 on the men's side, because you can qualify for the Grand Slam qualification who gives you sort of enough, a little bit of a lift financially to make it through a year. Um, we're a sport that generate one, more than 1 billion people watching. And I think more than only 500 people should be able to make a living of their sports when you have more than 1 billion fan base. Um, I thought, I think it's a broader conversation that we need to have. Not only having equal price money for men and women, which is for me a given and something that is so clear, but obviously it will take time from the sponsor point of view because I tried to organize a tournament in Paris, a WTA event 500. And when you talk to sponsors and you pitch them a WTA event, they're just not interested. That is a pure, hard, true fact. And it's how much we can change those mentalities because they will always look and say, oh, yeah, but, you know, if you come with the men's side as well, then we might invest in both well, because we get the men's side of it. I will not mention the sponsor because I'm not here to sort of, you know, point it out certain people. But that's a reality. And that's reality that we have to face. 
Um, it's something that would still take some stride and that would take a lot of effort to make those mentality change. And obviously, Billie Jean King has been that driving force for so long. And we, I think we have still as retired players to make the effort to keep trying until we get where we want, which is equal price money, but also until we get to have more people and more players making a living from tennis because they put so much effort. I don't think it's fair that you have only 250 on each side that can live from their sports. Ben, I'm going to ask you to play devil's advocate, um, even from a sports business side, perhaps. Can you give us a reason why this hasn't happened logistically or shouldn't happen um, with equal prize money? Do you have any devil's advocate point to make on this? I mean, I can try to explain. I mean, obviously, I'm very for for equal prize money, and I do think it's the right time to be having this conversation because, I first of all, it doesn't get talked about enough, period, that the gap is still there. I mean, tennis does a lot of congratulating itself for equal prize money, but that's only really at the Grand Slams and the small handful of other tournaments in New Wales, Miami, I think Madrid are the only other ones that have equal prize money all year, right? So it's been a big issue. And also, the gaps are getting much bigger which is an even bigger issue overall. Like the Rome gap is increasing. The Cincinnati gap is increasing in recent years. And that's completely the wrong direction for it to be. Now, the the what the devil's advocate argument, like you're saying, would be that the tours are separate. They find out their prize money separately, and that's the way it is. But the fact is, I mean, so much of these joint events, especially, are the same. I mean, fans will buy a ticket to Cincinnati that will get them access to both the men's and women's courts, and they float freely between both sides of the tournament. It's very rare for a fan, I think, to go to a Cincinnati and only to watch just the men or just the women. I mean, pretty much everybody who's there will see at least a little bit of both, um, depending on their preferences. And you can make a real effort to just watch one if you really want to, but it's pretty rare to not not see any. So they're stronger together. And that's one of the things that um, is actually coming up in this new deal that WTA made with this uh, capital firm that invested in them. It's one of the things they're saying. It's that there's, a, yes, there's a lot of value actually from a, from a marketing side by emphasizing the equality and actually the tennis can in a sort of social justice moment in the world cynically that by bragging that you are this equal sport and this pioneer and that's why wta has been doing so much of retelling the story of billy jean king of the original nine recently because those are stories they believe have obviously value historically but also value symbolically even going forward to try to tap into that sort of uh, pride that the WTA has and their history and their tradition and heritage of being this equal prize money pioneering sport for women. And so more and more foregrounding that is there. Uh, what the, what people point to to be, you know, devil's advocate is different TV deals they have for men and women. Usually they're sold separately. That could be united also. I mean, and they would increase the value for both. It'd be more than the, some of their parts if you package those together. Um, cause somebody, I mean, in the U S almost always they're all Mark, uh, broadcast on the same channel. We don't have that issue, but sometimes if you're in a country where the WTA is on one channel, ATP is another channel. Yeah. It's a, and it's a big problem for broadcasters. If one match goes long and then there's blank space for a long time, it's just a headache. So it's much more valuable for those things to be sold together across the board. Okay. Another difficult conversation, perhaps more difficult because this one's not as clear to us. Um, your thoughts on Wimbledon's decision to conditionally allow Russians and Belarusians to participate in this year's tournament. Your thoughts on the decision, again, conditionally is in quotations in our rundown. Uh, Simon Cambers, get us started. Yeah, well, maybe it's worth um, sort of just a brief explainer of what, what happened and where, the, where we are now. Last year, obviously, Wimbledon decided to ban Russian and Belarusian players uh, over the invasion of Ukraine. Um, which was very well received uh, by the public in Britain at the time. Um, 
who you know totally backed the decision. But over the over the course of the year, the the rest of the tennis world didn't help Wimbledon at all by sort of backing them up. The other slams decided to let them in, uh, Russians and Belarusians. Um, the WTA and ATP insisting that their players are individuals. So they play not under the Russian flag or the Belarusian flag, but they are allowed to play. And what forced Wimbledon's hand was, uh, I think, I actually think Wimbledon would, it's hard to be sure about this, but we've, you know, I've had a little bit of discussions with them as part of a small group of journalists over the last few weeks or so. And I get the feeling that they would have liked to keep the ban going. I may be wrong, but that's what that's what I think. It's just that the ATP and WTA fined Wimbledon heavily uh, and the LTA, the Lawn Tennis Association in Britain. And the real thing that forced Wimbledon's hand this year is that uh, they threatened them with removing the sanction of Queen's and Eastbourne and all the other British tournaments. So you would be left in a situation, worst case scenario, where Wimbledon is the only one that still exists, doesn't have any ranking points, and there are no grass court warm-up events. And the, the Lawn Tennis Association probably couldn't cope with that financially, um, as wealthy as it is because of a relationship they have with Wimbledon. But uh, Wimbledon's hand was forced. I, I feel like they didn't want to do this. When we talk about conditionally, the difference this year is that they're going to be, the Russian and Belarusian players who play will be asked to sign a declaration of neutrality and none of their teams will be allowed to be, you know, sort of representing Russia in any way. They can't receive funding from the Russian Federation, which I have no idea how they're going to enforce that. Because that's that's virtually impossible. But the diff that they say, Wimbledon say that the, the uh, difference this year is that asking them to write to do this neutrality uh, declaration is workable now. And back then they say it wasn't. Personally, I think. I, I would have liked to I would have liked tennis to have been more united on this initially and to have and to have stuck with it. You see other sports, and I know we're going to get into the discussion of team sports against individual sports, but all team sports around the world have have banned Russian and Belarusian teams. You know, what kind of message does it send to Ukraine and to Russia when you just say, well, you know, you're we're an individual sport, so we don't really fit into that. Uh, we'll just, you know, we'll let you in and you can play. No, no it, I know, of course, that it's not the individual tennis players' fault that their government invaded Ukraine. We all know that. But, you know, you do, you've got to make a stand somewhere. Wimbledon tried to make a stand and they got punished for it. And I I feel, you know, I, I'm not the first person to defend Wimbledon in a lot of things they do. I think they make a lot of mistakes as as well as doing a lot of things right. In this case, I think they tried to do the right thing and maybe they felt let down by the lack of support they got. And so here we are a year on where it's going to be a little bit different, but you know, basically they can all play again. And given what's happening in tennis at the moment, there's a pretty good chance that a Russian-born or a Russian or a Belarusian player goes and wins Wimbledon and it's more propaganda for the Russian government to use. Marion, quickly, your thoughts on this decision of Wimbledon to conditionally allow Russians, Belarusians to participate in this year's tournament? Yeah, well, um, obviously as a member of Wimbledon, I received that news uh, probably a little bit earlier than the press, uh, so I was aware of it. But as Simon very well explained, they were put out into a situation where they just couldn't have the whole ATA circuit on the balance. 
that was just too much to handle. Um, and especially that was just taking away a lot of opportunities to in British players to play in the grass court season with the wild cards and the possibility for them also to earn some points. And we all know for Emma Raducanu, almost everything started um, in the grass court two years ago because you gave her the opportunity with the wild card. So those tournaments are very important for the young British players to have those chances, just as Ronga was important for a young French player as well. So I think everything taken into consideration and, and probably as Simon very well explained, because they were the only ones standing behind that idea, it was just left with no other solution. So they tried to make it as strict as possible around and just square everything as much as they could um, to make it, you know, first of all, showing their, their support to Ukraine and to Ukrainian players very strongly. And then to really very strongly try to take on the side the Russian Belarusian from any sort of demonstration, anything. So they have tried their hardest, but unfortunately they, they were felt, they were left with just no other options. It was just not possible for them to continue on that path, which is something I regret, obviously. But the problem is the WTA and the ATP, I'm guessing, stands for the fact that everyone has an individual chance to compete despite everything else, uh, religion, whatever you want to call it, nationality. And Based on that, you can't just breach all those contracts. You can't just breach all those walls. So I think Wibbon tried last year. Um, they saw the results. They've been trying again this year, but left with no other choices. When we can talk about so many, so many things that doesn't make sense when you see Novak Djokovic denied to play in the States in Indianapolis, Miami, and he will be able to play in July and August doesn't make sense. I mean, we can raise eyebrows on so many things. I think for this year as Wimbledon, if you're Ewan Hewitt and you have to take a decision, you have to lean into that way because otherwise you just don't give enough chances to British players and, and yeah, you just don't have any other solutions. I think that it's tricky because I think Wimbledon, I kind of think everyone did the right thing last year, actually, which is kind of a, a weird answer to have. But I do think that Wimbledon, because one thing with Wimbledon is they are more connected to the government than any other Grand Slam event is. I mean, they, Wimbledon really does see itself as part of British culture, as nominally a British government institution in a lot of ways. I mean, they have the royal family there who is technically still the heads of state, uh, who are very much a part of that. And and so they felt like they really had to uphold the government uh, view on Russia in a way that the US Open, for example, did not feel, and French Open did not feel, and Australian Open, maybe a little bit closer to government on Australia, but not the same as Wimbledon in terms of being a national symbol that way. So they felt that pressure. And then the ATP WTA said, that's not something we can accept because of because of our rules, and so we're going to take away the points. I actually think that all kind of played out, even though it was messy, I think it all kind of made sense to me in my head. Um, I do think it's a problem when, I do think Wimbledon was very naive to think if they did this unilaterally, separately, that everyone would just kind of follow along with them. And I think we've seen this in tennis in recent years before, where, you know, like the French Open, for example, unilaterally moved uh, in 2020 from May to September, October for its dates. And that caused a lot of problems and other headaches for other federations and stuff. So cooperation has been very low in tennis. Uh, I do think the current situation of having the Russians and Belarusians be neutrals is nonsense. Everyone knows there's still Russians and Belarusians there. And the blank flag is very, the blank space is very easily filled in your head with a Russian or Belarusian flag. And these victories are still being celebrated in their country. You know, Sabalenka's win in Australia as a neutral was still celebrated, I'm sure, in, in Belarusian media, like it would be if if the Belarusian flag was there. I mean, it doesn't really do anything to diminish. I think the idea of propaganda for Wimbledon wins that actually affects the war is kind of silly. I don't think a Wimbledon win is going to change anything on the battlefield meaningfully. Um, but what I would do 
is I would require all players to have a valid country next to them. And if you want, if the Belarusian Russian players want to keep playing, they can pick a new country basically. And so many of them already live outside of Belarus and Russia. So many of them already have deep ties to their, you know, uh, Varva Gracheva, I know is switching to France as one of the Russian players. Uh, Dino Medvedev, for example, has lived in France and Monaco, I guess, for a long time. And if he was to switch to, to France in time for the French Open, I think that'd be culturally a very smooth switch. And I'm sure France would be happy to have him. And just, you know, and, and if some Russian players don't want to do this and think that's too much, then okay, they can leave the tour. I think that's sort of a way to make it so, because just right now, I think it's kind of this half step, this redacting the country, but keeping the players, I don't think actually accomplishes anything. I think you have to do something meaningfully to force them to separate um, from Russia and Belarus more than just sort of hiding their country. Simon, I know there was something Ben said that you wanted to interject on. Please go ahead. Yeah, it's just um, it, Ben made a good point about the government and the government after Wimbledon made their announcement, the LTA made theirs, the government uh, said that they think it was totally wrong that the LTA and Wimbledon were were threatened and fined basically for the for their decision you know they would have liked to have done more but the chances of Brit- the British government sort of let's say rejecting everyone's visa was was very you know close to zero so Wimbledon would have loved that because that would have taken it out of their hands but it was just never going to happen the British government made Wimbledon do their dirty work, essentially. And it's what I mean, we've mentioned Djokovic a few times in this, but the Djokovic has repeatedly been blocked by governments from entering countries, you know, in recent years because of his issues. And if the British government had been the ones to stand up and say, we're not going to allow any Russians or Belarusian people in, then it would have protected Wimbledon. But instead, they threw Wimbledon uh, under the bus, the double-decker bus, so to speak, and uh, and let them let them take the hit. All right, folks, uh, final question of this episode of Match Points today. And, and this comes from the Miami Open that just concluded. Taylor Fritz explains that being consistent on the tour, making quarters and semis was less rewarding in terms of rankings and points than winning tournaments. The question we're being asked is, are you happy with the current point system on the ATP tour? Yes or no? Marin Bartoli. Well, it always worked this way. And when it was not working that way, it was causing a lot of issues because when Serena, for example, was not playing that many events, but was winning three Grand Slam a year, if a girl was playing a lot more and winning what was not called back then Masters 1000, but would be the equivalency now, WTA 1000, she was ahead of number one when everyone would think Serena was number one because she was winning the majority of the Grand Slam. So you have to make it that way because for the public, it has to be clear that when you win the majority of the slams, you're the number one player in the world. Because we, us as tennis fanatics, we obviously follow everything year long and the ranking and the points and everything. But you have to also think from not so regular, fine point of view that you know, you have to make things quite easy to follow because, you know, if Djokovic is winning two or three times a year and he's not number one in the world, you're going to be like, um, so who is playing better since he won three Grand Slam? You know, so you have to make it clear for the fans. And obviously, it always been the case, again, um, when the new ranking system was in place that you almost double the points as you move into rounds. So when I was playing, for example, um, Grand Slam title was 2,000 points. Um, semifinal was 900 and final was, I think, 1,300 or 1,400. So if you win, you obviously take that, that gap. And even if you don't play the rest of, you know, the majority of the events, because you get that gap, then you still take that ranking up. And I think it's fair to work it this way because you have to think as a fan point of view. Once again, we have been talking about the price money and everything. The price money will come 
even more when the fans base is so strong because fans understand what's happening. And I think as part of the understanding, it's it's a lot more readable to think when, when someone wins multiple tournaments and the ones who are giving the most points, they're with the highest ranking. I think it should remain that way. Fair enough. Quick answer. Ben Rothenberg, uh, happy with the current point system for the ATP Tour and Taylor Fritz's uh, thoughts. Yeah, I think that I think the the system just sort of how we're raised in tennis it makes sense. You just get so much more attention for winning than you do for some sort of commensurate quarterfinal or semifinal. I mean, Marion can speak to this. I'm sure, like the attention and and praise and memory she has from winning Wimbledon are more than double probably what you had from losing in the final the time she was a runner up. I mean, like it's just it's you know. It's we focus on the winners and the winners get the glory and attention, and the ranking points and everything. And it could even be maybe more extreme than that sometimes. I mean, because I think getting, you know, a champion at Wimbledon, for example, is more than eight times as valuable as being a quarterfinalist or whatever. Like it's just the emphasis on these late rounds on holding up the trophy at the end is what tennis is all about. It's winner take all. And, it, and it's harsh. You know, sometimes you can feel like you're doing a great job if you're ranked, you know, between seven and 12 and making a lot of quarterfinals and doing stuff. But ultimately, you're probably not the one selling the tickets and being on the poster and and moving the product. It's a very, very top heavy sport for better and for worse. And it really is about superstars rather than about sort of the group of people. Yeah, I mean, it's funny to think, isn't it? Before the rankings were introduced in 73, it used to be a bunch of journalists who picked the number one. Imagine that now. It'd be a laugh, wouldn't it? That would go down well. Let's do um, it again. Let's do it again. <laughs> but I, I think um, I, I, I like, uh, I, I don't mind the ranking system as it is. I think, uh, you know, as both Marion and Ben said, you know, it's about, it is about winning. You, you need to, you need to reward that because everyone loses almost every week. When you win, it needs to be something big. It needs to mean something. What I would like to see reintroduced is bonus points for, uh, for beating, for beating top ranked players because, you know the, the the speed that people can move from lower rankings up to the to higher up is pretty slow unless you're a, a superstar and you just make a massive breakthrough. But if you, I was just thinking while you were talking about you know Tim Van Rijthoven when he won in uh, on on grass before Wimbledon in Den Bosch last year, um, you know he he deserved maybe more points than he got for that, and he deserved a few extra points to push him up. It used to be actually the Grand Slam even win over a top player, you get even double bonus point. So it was regular bonus yeah. point for the rest of the year, and then Grand Slam when he was even counting more. And we will leave it there for today. Thank you so much. Marion Bartoli, Simon Cambers, Ben Rothenberg. Uh, folks, remember, there is an audio-only version. There's plenty of video as well as podcasts to enjoy here on TennisMajors.com. For the entire team, Josh Cohen saying thanks for watching. We will catch you next time for more to match points right here on TennisMajors.com. <laughs>